At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Welcome back to Food 52's Burnt Toes Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. This episode is called Jolie Laid. In French, it means pretty and ugly, a way to describe something that is unconventionally beautiful. The Instagram world of food may be focused on perfection, but Jolie Laid is a trend in its own right. Take ugly ripe tomatoes, which have a trademark to promote flavor over facade, or a company that sells imperfect produce appropriately named imperfect produce, or a misshapen fish meatball by way of Poland, an organ meat that only a zombie could love, join me on this exploration of an homage to ugly, beautiful food. First, let's take a trip to the tropical nation of Jamaica, where Rastafarian Ital cuisine is vegetarian. That means lots of fruits and vegetables. It's a big citrus-growing region known for a bumpy-looking grapefruit meats tangerine. Botanically known as Citrus Reticulate X Paradise or Jamaican Tangelo, it's been part of the daily diet for the past 80 years. Farrah Wasserman, a New Yorker, remembers sunny days of growing up on the Caribbean island. In Jamaica, we just call it the ugly fruit. And I always thought it was just because of how it looked. So my grandma lives in rural Jamaica in a parish called St. Thomas on the eastern part of the island. And at the back of her yard, she had like a little farm and there was an ugly tree in the back of the yard. And I can vividly remember in the summertime, like the sun just, my cousin and I taking shade under the tree and just playing around there as kids. And yeah, it was a really good time. <laughs> the sun just shining on our faces. Ugly fruit has a pronounced soreness that makes you pucker up right away upon like, like smacking your lips. You know, that kind of feel that you get when you taste something really sour and acidic. But it must be good for certain aspects of Jamaican cuisine, such as jerk chicken, oxtail. You need that sour and acidic foil. Especially like when you're doing like roasted fishes, like in like foil paper and stuff like that. It's really good to add flavor, that, that, like that particular sour flavor profile that you need in food, in, especially in our cuisine, like in like sauces and to accompany meat and stuff like that. So it, it's really useful. Can you actually visually describe what an ugly fruit looks like inside and out. The outside of the plant is very unattractive. It's almost like lumpy on the outside. Some of them can have like discoloration of like brown and black black marks on them that make them really unattractive. It's round and can get really big. It can grow to massive sizes. Um, on the inside, it's very similar to like a lemon. It's like a bright yellow inside. From what I remember, I haven't seen it in like years, but from what I remember. Kwame Williams, the chef at Vital in Montclair, New Jersey, takes cooking cues from his Jamaican heritage. 
First generation, he grew up in Florida, yet spent summers in Jamaica with relatives. He too fondly remembers Ugly Fruit. People are hesitant, first of all, with the name. And then even looking at it, you, you think that it's going to be tough and cumbersome to eat and consume. Well, I actually have one in front of me. H how do I get into this Ugly Fruit? It's actually very easy to peel, even if the rind itself is super thick. You can slice it in half and grab a spoon and eat it like a grapefruit. How do people enjoy Ugly Fruit? Well, people obviously do fruit salads. I have a couple of ideas in the tuck for when I do open my first restaurant with a liquor license where there's a lot of uh, drinks that I would like to incorporate it with, whether we use the rind for syrup or we're using the juice from the actual fruit. You could do glazes. Have you tasted it, right? Because I know you just opened it up. Have you tasted it? Oh, God, I have it right in front of me, and it's been open, staring me in the face. I'm going to do it right, it, right? now. So, so the moment you taste it, right, you'll, you'll, you'll get those popular those flavors. And then now think of anything that you've had with citrus, right, whether it be some type of Asian salad with mandarin oranges or some type of citrus glazed chicken or anything else. Those flavors are going to come right to you. They're going to pop. They're going to be even more bright. It's the perfect balance of tangy and sweet. As long as you got one that was right, it's going to be like every, every citrus fruit that you've had in one bite. It's what's on the inside that counts, right? The same goes for tomatoes. People want perfectly round, red tomatoes, but irregular-looking heirlooms can be even more delicious. Go to the farmer's market, and you'll see purple, black, green-striped, orange, teardrop, heart-shaped, and even some that are too large for one hand. If variety is the spice of life, then why wouldn't we want this array? It's because we've been preconditioned to want a round red tomato. Father and son, Joseph M. Procacci and Joseph III, or JP3, prefer their tomatoes ripe no matter what they look like. That's why their family started Ugly Ripe. What fascinates me about these wrinkly tomatoes is that they may look ugly, but they're delicious heirlooms. Why the choice to grow these tomatoes rather than others? My father and I, uh, years ago, made a commitment to taste. We figured taste sells. An original Marmande variety that was grown in, uh, and marketed in the late 19th century in southern France and southern Italy. And some people still grow these tomatoes in Europe. These tomatoes, we brought them in, and the only thing we changed on the tomato was that we wanted to stake them. You can't let tomatoes land in the water. So we had to bring them upright, so we had to strengthen the plant, the actual branch material. That's the only thing we changed on them. Uh, going off of what my father said, they're a true tomato. They're something that, you know, you would expect your grandmother to serve you at home. They're beautiful, but they're ugly. They have big, rigid shoulders. They have some growth cracks, but they're the most delicious tomato in the world. It's what, how we market the tomato that tastes like a tomato. I grow these tomatoes in New Jersey, and they are difficult in that if they get a lot of rain, you can start to experience more ugliness. When the tomato sucks up some of that water, it, uh, it starts to crack a little bit more. And then to touch on taste, it's the perfect balance between a, a sugar and an acid flavor. It's, uh, when, it, when it hits your lips, it is absolutely uh, exquisite. Past that tough exterior is a sweet, succulent tomato. But first, it has to get past the grocer's doors. We originally called this backyard tomato, but we couldn't get it through the inspectors 
at the chain stores because they said they were too ugly. Everybody was saying, these, I can't bring these tomatoes in here. We can't buy these tomatoes. They're too ugly. So we got the idea to change the name to Ugly Right. They're supposed to be ugly. Unfortunately, when our tomatoes are too ugly, we have to uh, give them to call. And we have hog farmers near our packing houses. And we often joke that the hogs that live near our packing house eat better than 99% of our population. These tomatoes are so delicious. Some of them are just too ugly. Too ugly. Can you believe that? A tomato only a mother could love. Alex Strubb is CMO at Imperfect Produce. Selling ugly produce at 30 to 50% cheaper than what you'll find in the grocery store is her job. Her company delivers commercially unattractive fruits and vegetables directly to people's homes, saving what would have otherwise gone to waste. 20% of all produce grown in the U.S. falls into this category. That's one in five fruits and vegetables. How do you classify ugly? It happens before we're the decision maker. So it happens at the farm, it happens at the grocery store, and it happens at the pack house. Essentially, there are standards, and some of these are actually written to law. So like, it's illegal to sell a double kiwi, um, if you can believe it. Really? Yeah. People love double rainbows. Why wouldn't they love double kiwis? Totally. In Italy, they call them dobles. They just <laughs> like love them, you know? But we make it illegal. And that's about 15% of kiwis like to grow that way. So if you can imagine how many pounds we're throwing away that are just because they they grew together. It's like throwing away all the twins in the U.S. There's kind of these standards that are set in place. And, you know, some of that is due to like shipping requirements. But a lot of it does come down to just perception and, and this fact that you want that perfect peach. You don't want the lopsided peach. Alex cites many common reasons why produce gets rejected from grocery stores. Size, asymmetry, scarring, discoloration. Yeah, so size is an easy one. It's just a little too big or a little too small. Scarring is simply something that's it's never more than skin deep. Oranges and lemons, oh my God, they have scars all the time, but it doesn't impact the flavor and you can still even zest it. Another one is discoloration. So watermelons and other melons uh, will get, you know, they'll get sunburned. And actually they're really delicious where they do get sunburned because it's where a lot of the sugars will come up apples even get sunburned and you'll see the different the different colors on an apple and it's like means it's a really good and like sweet apple asymmetry is the other one so that's like the lopsided peach or apple we've also had a lot of issues with fractal broccoli or um, romanesco and they usually grow in like a straight up spiral if you've ever seen them in the grocery store but sometimes they grow in a spiral a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left and just because it's not in a perfect spiral, they can't sell it to the grocery store. So where does it go if it doesn't get sold through your company? All sorts of places. So in, in the best case scenario, it will go, you know, it'll get donated to a food bank. But there's, you know, food banks only have so much capacity. It might also go to a processor. So like apples and carrots have a great processor market because of applesauce and baby carrots. And, you know, juicing is now so popular, so great to different juices. But you think about other products like even like beets or potatoes don't have as great of a secondary processor market. So we're kind of going down a list here of from the greatest potential to the worst potential. So another one's animal feed. Um, another option is that it just goes to compost or it's just left in the field to rot because they can see the issues already with the growth of the product. And there's the farmer is not going to pay their labor to get it on the ground only to compost it later. Um, and then the worst case scenario is that it gets harvested, it gets 
in package, like you'll see cauliflower in the grocery store with a plastic wrap over it. And once that happens, you know, they can't, they can't compost it. And so it'll go straight to the landfill. How do we get over the idea that, you know, perfect is the produce that we should buy? A lot of that happens before you even go to the grocery store, before it's even put on that shelf. And so a lot of that kind of rests in policy and just creating a market for these items and showing farmers that they can get, you know, make great money off of this product that otherwise they weren't making anything on and actually taking a loss on. What are some of your favorite imperfect produce recipes, you know, using that not so sightly part of a fruit or vegetable? Probably my favorite one is actually not a food, but we have this awesome recipe for orange peel cleaner. So you take the scarred orange peels after you've eaten the flesh inside of the orange and you soak them in apple cider vinegar, and then you can use it to clean your kitchen uh, or any surface really. And it's this like amazing smelling bright orange vinegar, and it's way better for you know any of your food surfaces. So you're not bringing chemicals into your home. I can't stress that really the issue here is just awareness. The people don't really understand how huge food waste is as an issue. Like if you if you combined all of food waste across the world, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter after the US and China as a country. <laughs> like that, you know, that to me is insane. And so really starting to make change um, and have people just like aware of, you know, I mean it's not ugly produce, but at home just taking steps to use every part of what you've got in your fridge. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. It's not always about what you see, but also how you see it. It takes time for people to get used to little-known or foreign foods. Min Tsai knows this well. He grew up in Vietnam, moving to San Francisco at a time when tofu became a booming business in the Bay Area. But the tofu he saw in San Francisco wasn't at all like he had seen in Asia. In the past 15 years, he's been reintroducing tofu to the American public by way of his company, Hodo. Tofu was introduced in the 70s. But it, uh, by the time I started the company, it's pretty much a commodity. And all the consumers were getting at the time were the pretty bland white block and a few smoked baked tofu. Because I grew up in Vietnam and I was eating really fresh, delicious tofu. So it was my attempt to make the tofu I wanted to eat and it became a business. Can you tell me what tofu is actually made from and what fresh, delicious tofu tastes like? So tofu has been around for several thousand years, started in Asia, pretty much an accidental discovery like any other delicious food. Somebody was cooking soybeans, and the beans had some excess water, and the maker decided to add some acid, in this case vinegar, to make it taste better, and then it coagulated into a curd. And in Asia, the way it is consumed, It's very fresh. It's usually consumed the day it is made, and it's quite delicate and fragrant. So it's very different from the extra firm and firm tofu consumed in the U.S. today. It's literally a step away from just edamame, which some of us don't even know is essentially a young soybean. So 
taking another leap from tofu to yuba, the, the skin of the tofu, when you see it on its own and don't have that reference point back to what it's actually made from, it, it seems mysterious, like this veil. Uh, I, I think of it like the skin of a pudding, which was actually my favorite part of making instant pudding. But what what is yuba and where is it normally consumed? So yuba is a Japanese word to describe the tofu skin or the cream of tofu in this particular case. It is essentially very similar to the cream of any milk. It's a fat and a protein that rises to the top. So in this case, when we cook or steam or simmer rather the soy milk with high fat and high protein, a layer forms on top. And that layer is the yuba. And a part of the process of making them is hanging them to dry. And it kind of looks more like cotton and linen than it does a food object. Yes. And until we make it at Hodo in a fresh form, fresh yuba was not really introduced to the U.S. It's highly perishable and it's extremely expensive to make because it's labor intensive and the yield is very low. Imagine if you have to harvest the cream of milk over and over again, and it's the only way that you can uh, to, to harvest it is to wait for it to form. Blobfish, goblin shark, lump suckers, snakeheads, rat tails. Those are some pretty ugly fish names, right? But once filleted and faceless, consuming them doesn't seem that bad. And then there's gefilte fish, an Ashkenazi appetizer traditionally served in Jewish households. It's comprised of deboned, then ground whitefish, made into something that looks like a flattened meatball. Jeffrey Yaskowitz and Liz Alpern began gefilteria as a way to shape the future of gefilte fish. So Liz and I, we both grew up in the New York area. We grew up with really great bagel shops and appetizing shops and delis. And, and we felt like we had found kindred spirits. You know, we both appreciated what this cuisine was and what it could be. And we felt like there was something missing. So we began talking, scheming. And one of the things that we decided to tackle first was gefilte fish. My friend called gefilte fish the sausage of the sea. And I took it really <laughs> offensively because I loved this. My grandmother made it fresh every holiday. And Liz never had it fresh. Gefilte fish is a ground fish appetizer, so it's served cold, and if you wanted to talk about it in ugly terms, you might call it a fish meatball, but it's ground up fish also with onions, with maybe breadcrumbs or matzo meal, eggs, spices, herbs, if you're, if you're adventurous. Um, but the stuff on the, on the shelf in those jars, well, one, at one point it was fresh fish, and now it's been sitting in a jar preserved in synthetic gel for who knows how long. In Poland, it's Jewish carp is gefilte fish. Um, and in European culture, uh, you know, um, in history, Jews were actually carp farmers <laughs> and they raised carp in, in, in lakes. And so a lot of gefilte fish originally was this particular kind of European carp. A lot of the gefilte fish recipes you find in the United States are all sorts of different types of fish to try to approximate the flavor of what gefilte fish once was in Europe. So that's why it was it would be carp with a mixture of some pike or walleye and whitefish. 
and to be trying to find this right balance because, of course, when you take a, a food culture from one continent to another, there are these slight changes and then you try to account for them. Well, it's interesting to note when a recipe kind of moves from one continent to a next or one culture to a next, um, how it changes. Because I was over in Burgundy, Beaujolais, and I had um, quenelle de brochette, you know, like pike quenelles. And that's seen as like this classic French dish of Leonese cuisine. And you see it at really hoity-toity French restaurants here. But it's cathedral fish. Exactly. It's the same thing. <laughs> Wasn't it someone recently who just told us they went to this really fancy restaurant, they ordered the canel and they, they sat down and they, you know. They, it was they, like they, $20 was, appetizer. It was, it was like more than that. It was like 30 <laughs> or $40 and they get it and then they're like. Oh, it's gefilte fish. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, why Why do we laugh at gefilte fish and not at the French, you know, uh, French canelle? It's just, it's silly. Chris Cosentino is a chef advocate for organ meat, utilizing whole animals from head to tail at a San Francisco restaurant, Coxcomb. Trading your T-bones for tripe, burger blends for livers and kidneys, as we get to the heart of the matter. It's super unfortunate that the word awful is pronounced as such. What does it actually mean? Well, the term actually is a Latin term, which means to off-fall from the carcass. So during the actual harvest of an animal, it would be hung upside down, and it wore, if the animal was standing on all fours, the, the organs would fall out. So it's to off-fall from the carcass. When you think of organs, everybody has them, and it's an instant connection to oneself. It's a kind of ironic because people watch television and they'll watch zombie apocalypse movies. What's the show? Walking Dead. And they'll watch people eat people. People have this direct correlation. So they kind of freak out. I've eaten brain. And, you know, a lot of people will look at that organ and say, ew, brain. But let's pretend like you've never seen a brain and you just ate it. Can you explain to me what it tastes like? Brain has a pillow-like texture to it. It's very pillowy. It's very rich. It's very high fat content. So if it's cooked properly, you know, first you poach it in a court bouillon, then you let it chill so it's firm. Then you can sear it in brown butter. You can make a piccata out of it. There's many different ways and different applications for it to use. But ultimately, it's that pillowy texture with that richness and that underlying flavor of the animal that really makes it pretty spectacular. Can you explain the difference between offal and non-organ meat? You know, each one has a different texture. And then you start to look at skeletal muscle, which if you think about it, it has intermuscular fat. It has a larger cell wall structure than any organ meat itself. There's a, a textural difference between the two. When you cook liver, you don't want to overcook it because then it becomes the cell structure becomes granulated. Whereas if you overcook a piece of beef, yes, it's tough and sinewy and it becomes kind of gross, but the texture is still recognizable to people. And plus, we're a culture of crispy. So chicken feet, if they were all done crispy, I think people would be more apt to eat them. Whereas when they're braised and soft and gelatinous, it's really off-putting to the U.S. palate. I think it's really important to never mask what you're eating. I think for years that was the problem. I mean, we have that saying, you know, everybody loves a hot dog, but you wouldn't want to see what goes in it. And I don't ever want people to feel that way when they're eating with me. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm pulling one over on them because people are already intimidated enough by the subject. 
So if you hide it, I feel like it's lying to them. If they try it and they're looking at it and they see it, at least they're going to have a real honest opinion. My co-producer, Jordan Werner, is a master's student in food studies at NYU. The director of that program is Jennifer Schiffberg, who's long been studying how food and cultural identity affect American agricultural policies. We picked her brain to see how far the proverbial apple fell from the tree of generations past. I think in the United States, sort of since the beginning of industrialization, we've had a a fetishism towards perfection and a sense of uniformity. And ideologically in the United States, for us, it's always about innovation and speed and yield and more and bigger and faster. And in order to achieve that, like the end goal is going to be something that is going to look the same. We sort of culturally have exalted the Washington State Red Delicious Apple because everyone looks the same. They are super red. They look they look artificial. Yeah, and they know? have delicious in the name. And so they have delicious in the name, so they have to be perfect. <laughs> and they're big and they're blemish-free. We've just been conditioned to appreciate what we see. And what we see is what we see in supermarkets. And what we see in supermarkets are not what little farmers are giving us, but it is what big agriculture is giving us. We have to unlearn what that looks like. And we have to learn that ugly is beautiful. But that's counter to what we have been told and conditioned and you know, ideologically sold for a really, really long time. Do you see that rebranding happening with other things like I'm thinking of organ meat and maybe sweetbreads or other things like that? It's funny with organ meats because, you know, obviously they've been consumed in, let's say, certainly in France, where it's paramount to eat organ feed. But that was really a matter of practicality. France was a country like all of Europe that had rising populations and had fragile food supply in the sense that their population growth was outpacing food production. And so it was the mentality. And they also had periods of not famine in France, but they had periods of food insecurity from climatic reasons, certainly wars, devastation, occupation during World War II, lots of examples where They just understood that whatever you had, whatever animal you had, you ate the entirety of it. Here in the United States, we didn't. I mean, what what do we exalt? We exalt the boneless, skinless, flavorless chicken breast on styrofoam, covered in plastic, shiny, you know, in a supermarket. And we don't want to eat the rest of the chicken. We just, you know, we want to consume 30% of the chicken. And it's really like a younger movement that has sort of pushed this 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 incredible pushback against industrialized food in this country. But organ meats like require you to get down and get into them and kind of pull them apart and and deal with the blood and the membranes on them. And they're really quite beautiful, but but really scary, I guess, the first time the first time you engage with it. Who gets to dictate what we call ugly foods? When did this become a comparison of apples and oranges? An idiom reserved for when two groups are compared that cannot be practically compared. 
apples are apples and oranges are oranges, no matter what they look like. Let's flip this false analogy. An ugly apple can be a good apple too. Thank you to Food52, my co-producer, Jordan Werner, and Nick Rad and Michael Comite at HeadGum for recording. Music by Joshua Rule Dobson. In our next episode, we wake up to the world of breakfast clubs, a wide-eyed look into how we start our days. Whether it's a conversational coffee or grab-and-go breakfast from street carts around the world, hear about the Sweden Savior rituals that bring people together and enliven their mornings.